Welcome to Shift, a college admissions ACT and SAT podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that uses memory-based adaptive learning to get you better results in less time. You can get a free trial by going to achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we have Lewis Newman with us, and Lewis is an author, and I would just would rather let you kind of explain yourself and your book and, and talk about how where your expertise comes from on this topic. Sure. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am the now retired Dean of Academic Advising uh, at Stanford University. Uh, I held that position for six years and retired this past summer. But before that, uh, I was a faculty member, then uh, an administrator at Carleton College in Minnesota for really my whole career from the time I got out of graduate school uh, until 2016. Uh, and mm-hmm. I am now the author of a new book, which has just come out in the last couple of months based on really my years of teaching and advising students called Thinking Critically in College, The Essential Handbook for Student Success, which you can find anywhere where you like to buy books. Great. And so today we're going to talk about something that uh, is, I think, just a really important topic. It's something that you, you touch on in your book, but um, is also something that I think a lot of people are maybe not doing correctly, which is how to choose a college intelligently. Um, and the biggest thing that I thought was interesting about this is the fact that, you know, people are relying on the wrong information to choose their college and kind of, they're giving too much weight to the wrong things. And then they're not giving enough weight or they're not even they're aware of like these other measures or methods that they can use to evaluate colleges that will give them a much better result. That's a better, hopefully a better fit for them and, or their child. Uh, and so I'd love if you could kind of kick us off maybe with the first part, which is, you know, what are, what are the sources that everybody bases it on that you and why don't you think they're the right ones? Be happy to. So some of this is based really just on my experience of watching prospective college students and their families uh, coming through campus uh, year after year, looking at Carleton, then looking at Stanford, uh, and trying to assess, like, is this the right place uh, for me? And uh, in talking to some of those students over the years, and just in my own experience, sometimes those students would come uh, visit one of my classes and then talk to me afterwards. So I'd get a pretty good sense of what they were thinking and how they were approaching their college decision choice. And uh, I, I think in many cases, they're, they're swayed by things that really make very little difference. So it's nice to go to a campus that's beautiful. And of course, uh, Stanford is a beautiful campus. Carleton, in its own way, is a lovely place. But at the end of the day, uh, the value of your college diploma does not really depend on how pretty the campus was. And once you've left it, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't going to matter to you very much anymore how pretty it was. What's going to matter to you is how good an education you got and how well it serves you for the rest of your life. So think about that. The, the, the beauty of the campus is very seductive, but not necessarily all that important. The quality of the campus tour is another thing. Uh, my own experience taking one of my sons, I remember distinctly, to the University of Pennsylvania, which he was considering. And we got, uh, did the tour, of course. And the tour guide was dreadful. Just dreadful. Scarcely made eye contact. Was really just just gave a, a, an awful tour, and it turned my son off to Penn. Now, it, you know, it's hard to explain to a seventeen or eighteen year old. You know, you got to look beyond this. But the truth is, the quality of the mm-hmm. tour really has nothing to do with the quality of the institution. Um, and I'll go one step further. 
uh, one of the other things that people feel, okay, now I'm going to really get something important, some real important information. I'm going to go to a class and I'm going to see what the classes are like at this place. Well, you know, the reality is you step into a classroom, you visit once on one day out of the semester. That might have been a great day for that course. It might have been an off day. I can tell you as a faculty member for more than 30 years, there were both good days and bad days in pretty much every class I ever taught. And even if you come out with a really strong impression, that doesn't mean that my class is representative of the rest of the college. So honestly, you can't generalize from that. And uh, maybe you feel like you're getting some information, but it's not necessarily uh, the kind of data that you really ought to be making a decision uh, based on. Right. Well, and I think that's interesting because I don't know. I'm a try before you buy kind of guy, right? <laughs> that's what we do with Achievable. Um, and it's interesting that you don't think that like going to a class is, is a good indication of that. Is it just because there's like too many variables, you think? Like, you know. Exactly. There are way too many variables. Um, you know, uh, sometimes it might have been after a weekend of a lot of partying, you know, and the students really were underprepared that day. And so discussion lagged and, you know, the professor was asking questions and the students seemed kind of lackadaisical. Well, maybe it had nothing to do with, you know, the quality of the instruction or how good the course was or even how good the students were. It was just, you know, a day when they were underprepared. And those days mm -hmm. happen all the time. And there's no way for you to know that just stepping into a class once as a guest. You just have no idea what the rest of the course is like. I will tell you something that would be useful, though. If you gathered the syllabi of the courses at the places you were interested in, and look at how much reading is there, how much writing is there, how much detail is there that the professor provides in terms of what support is available to students, what the grading is going to look like, um, what class attendance policies are, and so forth. You could learn something about how instructors run their courses based on their syllabi, which would be actually meaningful, especially if you gathered uh, a number of them from every institution uh, and in comparable disciplines and started comparing them. Right. Well, I think um, I think that's also pretty interesting just to see, you know, what kind of work you're going to be doing at these campuses, right? Like I had a, a friend who went to Princeton and it turns out Princeton has like, there's like a thesis you have to do your junior year and there's just like, there's a lot of writing and a lot of like big essays and you know my school didn't really have that like we had um a senior year in business school or at not business school business undergrad at carnegie mellon we had something called the management game which was like an interactive game where you like set prices and so did all your classmates and like things like that right so it's like it tells you kind of like what the teaching is going to be like what the experience is going to be like and you know if you like essays and you don't like games then you should go to princeton but it's just if you really don't want to do a thesis again, if you didn't want it in high school like I did, then maybe you don't want to go to Princeton. So it's interesting. Right. Well, and I can tell you just from my, from my own experience, again, you know, in my courses at Carleton, and this was pretty standard for people, at least in the humanities, you know, it was common to have students writing 20 to 30 pages of some, something over the course of a, of a 10-week quarter. So, you know, you were turning in maybe four five-page papers, roughly. Uh, or more, plus maybe a final, a take-home final or something, whatever that, whatever that form was. And that was standard. That was, that was not regarded as an unusual amount of writing to require of students. I've now seen places like Stanford where uh, faculty tend to require less writing. You can go halfway through the semester 
uh, or through the quarter and and not have to turn in anything at all uh, in some courses. And so, you know, that just makes a big difference. You're getting less uh, regular feedback from your faculty over the course of the of the term uh, when you go to a place where they're not asking you to do as much writing. Now, you may find that appealing you know, if you don't like writing. On the other hand, uh, you're probably getting less instruction, actually, uh, than you would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to get your opinion on, on sort of the what not what to consider, not to consider. Where do you think the U.S. news rankings fall in that category? Oh, I'm so glad you raised that, Tyler. This is one of my favorite uh, uh, pet peeves. So, um, so, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the U.S. News and World Report rankings just recently uh, in terms of medical schools and law schools. Some very prominent institutions have just pulled out of the ranking uh, system entirely, refused to provide their information. But, but the fact is that even in the undergraduate rankings, uh, that they are based on faulty assumptions. So the assumption is that somehow there's a way, there's some set of metrics that you can use that is going to enable you to rank every institution in the country that you might be interested in, like sequentially from one to 500 or something. But if someone, well, let me put it this way. If if you were reading consumer reports and you were looking to buy a new car or a new refrigerator, you know, there might be very clear criteria and metrics that you would use to determine the quality of a car or some other commodity. And if you were looking if you're looking at an institution of higher education as if it were a commodity, then yeah, I suppose you could try to rank them in some order based on some set of criteria. But in my view, when students are choosing a college, they're really not choosing a commodity, even if they approach it that way. They really ought to be approaching it as if they're choosing a relationship. And if somebody handed you a list of, here are all the eligible people your age, you know, and we're going to rank them on a scale from one to 500 in terms of which one is the best person to, uh, to choose for a, for a partner, for a four-year relationship, right? Would you... Would you think about, you, you'd, you'd raise your eyebrows at that kind of list and go, well, wait, wait a minute. I mean, some people like, like tall partners. Some people like people who are athletic. Some people like people who are outgoing. Some people like people who are introverted. Like, there are all sorts of different things that people like in a, in a partner, in a relationship. You can't possibly come up with a, with a standard set of criteria that would apply to everyone looking for a partner. The same thing is really true of colleges. You're looking for who's the best, what's the best fit for you, not what's the best full stop. And I, and I think that's the fundamental flaw with the U.S. News and World Report rankings. It, it implies that there is some set of best and next to best and, you know, fifth down the list of best that everybody could agree on. And, and that's just, I think, uh, misleading. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's really interesting. And I, I also agree that it's so much of it should be about what you're specifically looking for and what you're excited about. As opposed to just, I don't know, what your friend's parents will say at, at the dinner party. Um, but I think that just it, it does play in a lot into the decision. I think like, I mean, something that this is a conversation that popped up even in like a group that I'm a part of. That's like other people in the sort of academic advising and tutoring worlds. And uh, for a lot of, you know, the, it's like there are studies of you know, how good the education is at like a top tier university versus tier two or three or whatever. And, you know, once you get far enough down the academic list, it, there is a difference in, in the quality of the education. 
Um, but the difference between sort of like, say, tier one and tier two is actually a lot smaller than people think. Um, it's just a difference in essentially name value, right? But then the ironic thing about that on the flip side is that like when you think about what's relevant to getting hired, it's actually more, the name value means a lot more than your GPA, right? Like my GPA at Carnegie Mellon was not that great, but I don't ever tell anyone that. I just tell them <laughs> I went to Carnegie Mellon. Um, and, you know, I, I, so I think it's a really, it's, you know, it's the system working as intended in that way. I don't know. It's kind of funny. Well, there's no question that name value and prestige in this world carries a lot of weight. And I'm not going to deny that mm. if you show up for a job interview and you're one of a pool of 20 or 30 people applying for that job, and you have a degree from an Ivy League institution, it's very likely that someone is going to pay more attention to your resume than if you had graduated from someplace that they maybe had never heard of or someplace just, you know, a second or third tier institution. Not going to deny that. But I will say this, that actually how well prepared you are to do that job matters a lot more, ultimately, uh, and that ultimately the way you get the most out of college is by engaging with your faculty and applying yourself uh, diligently and really mm -hmm. exploring the opportunities that are offered to you and, and, and going after them. You could get a degree from Harvard and kind of never have really worked very hard, you know, and you could have gotten a degree from some other institution and worked really hard and learned a whole lot. And you can make that claim in the materials that you provide on your resume and, and in your application letter that will impress people with all the opportunities that you pursued while you were at Institution X that may not have a lot of name recognition, but what you've accomplished and what you've done with your education, how much you worked to get out of it, that will come through and that will be impressive as well. Um, and I'll add one more mm -hmm. thing, which is, you know, recommendation letters matter a lot. And if you're at a place where you really develop close relationships with your faculty and they write really strong letters of recommendation for you, that's going to help you a whole lot. If you go to Harvard, but you never really engage with the faculty and nobody knows you, and it comes time to get a letter of recommendation, you don't have anyone to ask because you never really cultivated those relationships. That's not going to help you much. So I don't, right. there's, a lot, there's a lot more to this, I think, that people realize. It's not just about, let's go to the places that have great prestige and, and, uh, and name recognition. Yeah. So then what are some other ways to evaluate schools, right? Like, what are other sources of data or just, like, things that you can do to try and learn a little bit more about the schools that you're considering? There are certain forms of uh, certain collections of data that most people don't know about that I think actually matter a lot. So here are a few. There is something called the, it goes by the name NESSE, N-S-S-E, National Survey of Student Engagement. It's a huge long survey mm -hmm. that's given out to thousands and thousands of students every year. It's been done for decades. And it asks questions of all sorts about social life, about academic life, about extracurriculars, about the environment on campus, you name it. Uh, it gives you a very comprehensive snapshot of what students uh, are thinking and doing and, uh, and how they're feeling about their education. And that data is collected and it's tracked year over year. You can, you can get uh, results that are national results, uh, that are aggregated results, but every institution gets its own student results, which they generally don't publish. But if you're a prospective student, 
and you're interested in an institution, you can certainly go to the admissions office and say, you know, I'd be interested in seeing what the Nessie survey results are for your institution over the last five years. And that will, mm-hmm. uh, if they're willing to share them with you, which they may or may not be, and by the way, if they're not, that might be a red flag. But uh, if they're willing right. to share them with you, you could learn a whole lot about the student experience at that school, which is not just anecdotal. It's really based on hundreds, if not thousands, of students who've, who've, who've completed this survey and answered hundreds of questions uh, about their experience. So that's real data from, from real students that would be really useful. That's a much better snapshot than a single class, right? <laughs> way better, way better. Uh, or just the impressions that you get by talking to a few random students uh, that you might bump into. Uh, or, or maybe if you stay overnight at a campus and you, uh, you know, are hosted by a student in a dorm room, you, you know, you might get to meet them and their friends and talk a little bit and, and get some impressions from them about what their experience has been. But you don't know if that's really uh, generalizable to the rest of the, of the student body or not. Uh, but, but a real survey, a comprehensive survey would give you real data. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've actually never heard of the Nessie before. And then is there anything, um, is there anything else like that? Like maybe on the alumni side or something? There are, there are not, as far as I know, there are not national standardized alumni surveys, but institutions very often do alumni surveys and you can certainly ask them for their alumni survey results. Again, you want to know if the alumni five or 10 years out look back on their educational experience and feel like they really got, got good value for their, for their money and for the time that they invested in their undergraduate education. And they, they, will, they will have collected information about that, how close they were with faculty. Uh, did they do a research project? Uh, you know, did they get a letter of recommendation from their faculty? Did they make lifelong, did they make friends that they have stayed in touch with, right? There are a lot of things that they will uh, be able to tell you based on their alumni surveys. There are also nationalized, standardized uh, uh, faculty surveys. One of them is called HERI, H-E-R-I, Higher Education Research Institute. Uh, I used to fill out these surveys every so many years, uh, and they are, they are uh, conducted at institutions all over the country on a regular basis. And they ask really hundreds of questions of faculty about how satisfied they are with their compensation, the support that they're getting, the collegiality, um, relationships between faculty and administration, uh, their teaching load, you name it. Everything about faculty experience uh, that you could ask is asked on that survey. And again, these things are not published uh, publicly, but you can ask an institution for whether they have uh, conducted the Harry survey of their faculty and what the results were. Because that will tell you a lot about how happy the faculty are at that institution. Have they thought about leaving? <laughs> you know, uh, are they really disgruntled? Because if they're not happy, the chances are that you're going to find faculty who are less engaged and less excited about going the extra mile on behalf of the institution or on behalf of the students at the institution. And, and that's going to be meaningful. So I think getting the results of the faculty survey is another way to, to gauge really the quality of the uh, of the educational environment at the institution. Interesting. And then, like, what would you? I, I'm curious, just sort of now to dig in a little bit more. What would you do if you came back with results that the students were very happy, but the faculty were not? <laughs> well, I think you just have to you just have to weigh that. Um, 
you know, mm-hmm. obviously on every survey, there's a range, right, of, uh, you know, in response to every one of these questions for both faculty and students. And so, you know, you, you want to sort of recognize that survey, survey instruments are not perfect gauges of, of sentiment and, and opinion, but it gives you some information. And I think the most useful way that, it, that, a, that a student might, might use this is to compare institutions. And so if, you've, if you find two or three or four institutions that you're really interested in or really excited about, you'd want to get this data uh, about each one of them and try to compare across those institutions and see if you could actually discern meaningful differences. And that might be a factor that would help you make a decision uh, to you know, tip, tip the scales in favor of one uh, over another when you might otherwise have been equally excited about both just on the face of what you learned from the brochures and the, you know, marketing information. That's another thing, by the way, to, to, to avoid getting influenced by. You know, schools these days spend a great deal of money marketing themselves to prospective students. Uh, I saw this over and over. And, you know, I understand why they do this. It's, it's valuable. It's a way for them to recruit a diverse student body and, and get the students that they're looking for. But, you know, uh, all those beautiful pictures of the campus that you find in those brochures, they never take pictures of the campus on days that aren't beautiful. Right? So, you know, keep in mind that this is, this is marketing. Treat it as marketing and, and not as just uh, fact. Uh, uh, so that's, that's another uh, thing that I think people are often unduly influenced by. The place looks so beautiful and the, the brochure is so glossy and it's so professionally done and, and so on and so forth. I, I think that's actually pretty meaningless when it, when it comes to the quality of education. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm curious then, um, within, let's start with like the Nessie survey. Um, what, are there any sort of like red flags to look out for, or just like things that people should be uh, like aware of that are good or bad that are like important, uh, pieces of the survey to pay attention to? Right. I, I'll, I'll do this from memory. I haven't looked at the survey in, in quite some time now. And I imagine that they probably change some of the questions from time to time as, you know, surveys do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they, they ask questions about mental health, for example, um, of students. Uh, and I think it's important uh, these days, especially post-COVID, to get some sense of the mental health uh, state of the student body. Uh, if, if a high percentage of students say they're very stressed most of the time, well, that tells you something. If they say that they're mm. anxious or depressed, uh, you could look at the percentage of students who respond to those questions. That, that tells you something. Other things I think that matter, um, quality of student social life. You know, is it a place that's dominated by Greek life, for example? Or is it a place where it feels like most people make, made friends easily and uh, where there's a lot of movement between social groups or where they feel as though they're sort of on their own to find, find the people that, that they might connect with? Uh, that's one of the big challenges that most students face when they start college. They're away from home, often for the first time. They're away from the friends that they grew up with and went to school with probably their whole lives or much of their lives. And all of a sudden, they're thrown into a, into, into a context where they may know nobody or almost nobody, and, and they've got to make friends all over again. And that can be very challenging. And, you know, how, how welcoming and warm uh, is, is, this, is the social environment on campus? Uh, I think the other thing that, that I, would, I would point to, which I think is really meaningful, is uh, what percentage of students will tell you that 
they have a close relationship with faculty, that they have had uh, an informal encounter with faculty over, or say, over lunch or coffee or something outside of class time. Um, how many students hmm. will say that they uh, did a research project with a faculty member, which is, by the way, one of the things studies have pointed this out many times. Uh, doing research with faculty is often one of the most impactful educational experiences that students will have in college. So the opportunity to do that uh, is really uh, one of the things that you're paying for when you're paying for a college education. And if faculty are mostly busy with their graduate students and have very little time to do this kind of thing for undergrads, that's going to be meaningful. You're not going to get that, that same opportunity. Off-campus study, by the way, I would say is another. What percentage of students have taken advantage of opportunities to travel abroad during their college years with other students uh, on a structured program? whether it's offered by the institution you're attending or whether it's offered by some other organization. And there are quite a few of them. So th those are great educational yeah. experiences. And, you know, the percentage of students who take advantage of them tells you something about the nature of the, the, the educational experience that students at that school are having. Right. Well, and it's also helpful if that's a priority for you, right, just to know that going in, which I feel like is information that's not usually readily apparent. Everyone's going to be like, of course, we have people study abroad. So, right. But is that 10% of the student population or 75% of the student population? Right. That's going to make a difference. 75 is high. That would be that would be a lot. <laughs> uh, at Carleton, it was I don't remember the details anymore because it's been a number of years now. It was, uh, it was a very high percentage. It was well over 50% of students traveled overseas uh, during their four years, I think. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, great. Well, then uh, the other one then I want, obviously, just like going down the same vein with the, with the HARI, the, um, the research survey for professors and faculty. Like, are there any just like things to watch out for one way or the other? You mentioned how happy people were. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the things, uh, and you can get this actually without a survey at all, um, is to get, a, to get a feel for how well-supported faculty are. And by that, I mean, every faculty member comes out of their graduate training, begins teaching at an institution, probably has had relatively little formal training in teaching. And if the institution cares about undergraduate teaching, they're going to provide support and ongoing resources and programs, often through something which is called a Center for Learning and Teaching or a Center for Teaching Excellence. They go by different names at different institutions. But if faculty feel like they're getting that kind of support when they launch their careers, it's going to make a big difference in the quality of instruction uh, that you get. And, and you can find this out by looking at a website and just seeing if your institution uh, has a, a Center for, for Learning and Teaching. But what you can find from the survey is how well, how well used is it, how active is it, are, are, do faculty uh, take advantage of it regularly, and, and beyond just that, do they feel as though uh, they're getting mentored by more experienced faculty who can help them uh, get on their feet and, and become really effective teachers. Um, you can also get a sense of whether uh, teaching plays a significant role in decisions about promotion and tenure. And if it does, mm -hmm. then faculty, of course, are going to be incentivized to do it well. And if it doesn't, uh, they're going to be incentivized to do other things well. Maybe their research uh, is going to be the highest priority. So that, you know, that's going to be a big difference. And you will learn that from looking at the faculty surveys. Great. 
Yeah. And then any, just any other things that you would recommend people take a look at or weigh when they're trying to research these colleges, right? Other than obviously do the research in the first place, don't right. just apply to right. Harvard, Stanford, et cetera, cause, and, and think that you're done. But um, yeah, what, how, what else should they be doing to research things? Definitely. Well, there's some, there's some other things. And I say some of these uh, kind of lightly, but, but I do think that they're, they're meaningful. If you do a campus visit, yeah, I've just said that the campus tour may not be very meaningful, but reading the campus newspaper and looking at bulletin boards where events are posted, if you spend you know, a bit of time poking around and looking at those things, it gives you a feel. It, it helps you put your finger on the pulse of the institution. Like, what kind of things are happening here? Uh, now, it won't tell you how many people went to the events. You know, uh, you, you won't know how well attended they were. But it'll give you a sense of how many student groups are posting things, um, what kinds of editorials are students writing in the newspaper, what kinds of, of news are they covering. Yeah, yeah that, gives you a, that gives you one window. It's, it's not uh, scientific by any means, but it's, it's certainly uh, more than just an impression. Uh, Another, th another thing you can do, this is even a little bit more impressionistic, but I think actually worth trying. Uh, if you're on a campus, stand someplace in a well-trafficked area and look lost. You know, like pull out a map of the campus and stare at it and look around for a while, making like you're not sure where you are or where you're trying to get. And just see how long it takes for someone to stop and ask, uh, you know, can I help you? Uh, That'll tell you something about, like, is this a friendly place where people are actually paying attention to whether someone who's right in front of them might actually need their help? Or are you going to stand there for 10 minutes without, you know, with dozens of people passing you and nobody bothering to ask, you know, to uh, anyone, anyone is, is offering to help you? I, I think that's actually, again, impressionistic. It's, uh, it's anecdotal. But on the other hand, it does, it does give you one more data point. Um, and one last thing I would say, and this is one that most people don't think about. Um, health services. Um, every institution mm -hmm. has uh, a health service of some sort. Uh, not every institution has a major medical center, however, on campus or near campus. If they have a medical school, they almost certainly do have a hospital. But if they don't, um, where is the nearest hospital? Because over the course of four years, there's a fairly decent chance that at some point you're going to have a bike accident, you're going to have some other illness, you're going to end up uh, needing the services of more than just a nurse practitioner in a, in a health center. You might need a doctor and you might even need a surgeon. Um, and, you know, how near that medical center is may actually at that point be a really, really important factor. So I would say that's another, yeah. another thing to think about. Do you, do you, what are your thoughts? You just, the medical center reminded me of one more thing to think about, which is like, where is the campus, Right. Um, because for instance, like, you know, Johns Hopkins and University of Southern California, uh, for a while were kind of famous for being in, for lack of a better word, like not great neighborhoods. Um, but you know, how much do you think that matters? Or do you think that's kind of like, in the, you know, a college campus is so insulated that maybe it's not that relevant? Well, I do think there's, I will say this, I think there's a big difference between being in the middle of a big metropolitan area like Baltimore or LA or, uh, University of Chicago is another example on the South side of Chicago. Um, Yale is at a, uh, has been said to be not in a great neighborhood of New Haven. But the, the reality is that I think most of these institutions are pretty well um, secured. Uh, campus security in, both, in all of these places is usually a pretty high priority. No institution wants to risk 
having students uh, injured on their watch. Um, so mm-hmm. um, it's pretty pretty important uh, to them. And, uh, and and so you know that's not a guarantee that you're going to be safe. I I wouldn't though say that you're necessarily safe if you go to a school in Northfield, Minnesota, which is where Carlton is, which is in the middle of farmland about 45 miles, uh, 45 minutes south of Minneapolis, St. Paul. So, you know, um, things happen everywhere. And, you know, you can't, you can't be sure that you're going to be safer in a, in a rural place than you are in an urban place. But, but I do think it's right. important. I do think it's important to ask about the uh, campus safety and security services, uh, particularly um, what's available at night if you are coming home late from an event and you're walking across campus. Um, you know, are there escort services available uh, if, you're, if you want that? Uh, are there emergency telephones that are easily available, uh, you know, spaced across the campus so that you're never too far away from help? Um, these are things you want to ask about. Most places these days, mm-hmm. I think, have, have that covered, but it certainly doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, you also just reminded me of uh, one last thing. Uh, which is, you know, your your experience at New York University in the middle of New York is going to be very different than at Carleton, 45 minutes south of Minneapolis-St. Paul. So you should also probably look into where you're going to be just as a city. Absolutely. You know, I, say to, I used to say to students all the time when they were coming through, you know, campus, you know, it's, it's a big difference. You're, you're, choosing, you're choosing not just an institution to study at, you're choosing a place to live for four years. And, you know, it is different to live in a rural or suburban setting than it is to live in the middle of a very busy uh, city like New York or L.A. So, you know, some people like being in the middle of the city. Some people prefer to be in a place that's quieter at night. Uh, You know, it's really that's a matter of personal preference, but it certainly does make a difference. And um, I, I think that it would be a mistake to choose an institution without at least paying some attention to that factor. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Louisa Newman. And you can get a free trial of Achievable's ACT course by going to achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off if you like it.